Hello and welcome to another edition of Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols. Usually on this program we talk about treating medical conditions, how to make life easier to live with them and often how to prevent them. This week on my program I decided that maybe we should look into history. How far back do we need to go to see where many of the terrible illnesses like the Black Plague wiped out whole towns and sometimes cities? And was all this so very long ago? How was the cause discovered? And what was it anyway? My guest today is getting ready to go wandering around Europe and London, taking in the paintings and drawings of famous artists like Michelangelo and da Vinci. Artists famous for their detail in the human anatomy. But how did they get their details so accurate? I'm delighted to welcome Emeritus Professor Robert Clancy as our guide. And Professor Clancy, thank you for talking with me. Oh, it's a great pleasure, Iris. Your wanderings will be in the company of like-minded people, taking advantage of the opportunity not only to see some very beautiful countries, but to see where our lot of medical history started. Where and when will you start? Well, we're, we're starting in Venice, and we have um, a trip from Venice through Montpellier, uh, also across uh, northern Italy to Paris and to London. And we're beginning in mid-September this year, and... Uh, Christine, my wife and I who are organising this, uh, have said we'd do another one next year. Sounds like you're getting yourself all ready to do a regular thing. No, 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 no. I think two will be terrific (laughs) and two will be enough. (laughs) All right, let's start with the places you're going. With Venice, I think you said you were going? Yes, we we start in Venice. And the the reason we're doing this is that we've tried to put into a trip a little bit more than perhaps some of the trips that you and I have gone on in the past. We're we're saying that we want to have a theme. Now, the way I see history is that it's all about people, places, and pressures. And what we're doing in this particular trip is looking at the people, the places, and the pressures through the traditional windows of art and architecture. But we're adding a couple of windows. And the main window we're adding is one of how people cared for the sick. In other words, the sort of history of medicine. And so we're going to sort of trace the way people cared for people, the history of medicine, starting in late medieval times, Renaissance times, so obviously we start in northern Italy, and then we move by bus uh, through France up to eventually London, where we're starting to look at the early scientific period with the great people like Pasteur, uh, and some of the French and English uh, scientists and surgeons of the 19th century. A lot of the care given to the general public, the community, was um, provided by the Benedictine monks. When did they found their monastery and where did they get their knowledge from? Well, that's, that's a good question. The, the monks really looked after the sick, uh, beginning pretty much around 400, 500 AD. Uh, in fact, the person who... Um, gets uh, Constantine gets the credit for uh, starting the uh, the Christian era of uh, caring for people when Constantine converted to uh, Christianity in around 400 AD. Now, the interesting thing about these monasteries was that they really didn't do very much for the sick people. In fact, very little was done for sick people until well into the 19th century. But what they did is they cared for them, they nursed them, and. It was all driven by the philosophy of the times. And the philosophy of the times saw the supernatural as being separate from the natural and that it really was a gift of God healing and it would not have been correct for mankind to get too involved. And so 
these hospitals were part of a, a complicated monasteric base which had a place for caring for people, which I guess were the early hospitals, a herb garden where they grew their herbs to make their uh, medicines, uh, ineffective though they may be, and a library which was critically important because they maintained through their library the knowledge base that came from Garland and the Greek philosophers. Uh, sadly, they only had it in Latin, and so they lost a lot of things because Greek was not spoken in um, Central uh, and Western Europe. Uh, until after Const uh, Constantinople fell and the Greek came back into uh, Western Europe. So you've got this complicated monasteric hospital set up with the three basic components, the hospital, the herb garden and the library. So when they sort of looked into the herb garden part of it, did they use the herbs to make the people more comfortable or to try and alleviate their pain or to make them better? How did they use those? Well, it was, it, it's interesting. They began, the, the diet in the Middle Ages was very boring. It was very much vegetable orientated. And the herb gardens really began to make the food more palatable. And when they started introducing meat, of course, there was a great need for the more powerful and uh, interesting herbs from the East, which sort of opened up in the post-Renaissance period, the great trips and the, the domination of the roots to the East Indies. Now, as a result of that, they found a number of these herbs also did good. And, of course, we have the influence of Arabs and, and great tradition, and some of these would make people uh, help with pain, uh, and various um, herbs were identified, but they were pretty sketchy and they weren't particularly effective. But they were certainly part of the evolution, if you like, of chemical medicine. Did they get knowledge about the herbs from people passing through the monasteries and staying? You know, if they were, I don't know, if they were sort of travelling with other goods, did they bring that knowledge with them and swap and share? Yes, they did. And, and this was a very, very important part of the development. Um, the Silk Road really began in Roman times, and that was bringing uh, herbs both ways from uh, Europe through to uh, China. And, and this is, of course, why Venice became such a dominant power in Genoa, the two great uh, the two great maritime cities. Uh, they were bringing in herbs and ideas from the Middle East and the Far East, uh, and there was a, a constant exchange of ideas as these herbs filtered down the uh, the great travel routes of uh, of Asia and Europe. I know that in in England there used to be people, usually women, often known as witches, who used herbs for medicines with the knowledge passed down from parent to child. Was this also the case in France and, and Italy? Yes, I, I think that that really, in a sense, reflects a component of, of uh, the care that came through the Middle Ages, that there was uh, exorcism and witchcraft and um, all sorts of uh, supernatural type of approaches to health and medicine. And, and early on, of course, this was uh, bona fide and acceptable. Uh, it seems to me that there became a time when uh, people carrying on these old, traditional, um, quite ineffective uh, ways of handling medical crises uh, suddenly were outside of the, the norm and, as always in our society, became a, a focus of derision and uh, uh, even more than that on many occasions. Do you think that we still retain a lot of those ideas that went back then in today's modern natural medicines that we use today? Yes, I, I think that's, that's also a very good question because what I find happening with my own patients is that if you ask them, and one should, um, they're taking a whole range of natural medicines that mainly because we in modern medicine, we don't have necessarily the 
best treatment for all the day-to-day, particularly the day-to-day, moment-to-moment symptoms. And so what's happening is people are going back more and more to some of these traditional type therapies, some of which, of course, are quite effective. Uh, What's happening again is that uh, regulatory affairs are saying, okay, if you want to use those probiotics, uh, vitamins, all these various uh, types of processes, uh, herb extracts, then you've got to prove they're effective. And so we're at a very interesting change now in medicine where I think people are taking control of their lives more, which is, which is healthy, uh, but they're to be given the tools that are going to be likely to be very effective. And I think this, this whole interface is, I find, a very exciting one. And it does actually come from tradition and goes back uh, many hundreds of years. Professor Robert Clancy is talking to me today about his intended trip around Italy, France and England, looking, among other things, at the history of medicine and pharmacy through the ages. Professor, you mentioned in the notes that you sent to me that when you get to France and along the Mediterranean coast, you'll go looking for the sources of perfumes. I understand the area was quite famous for them. Yes, yes, it was. Uh, My wife's a pharmacist and she's the expert in this area, but... uh, um, perfumes, in a sense, also grew out of that, that herb garden that I was talking about in the Middle Age monastery uh, caring centres. Uh, the uh, herbs that were used to flavour uh, foods which were bland and very uninteresting, people started noticing that they had interesting um, aromas and the aromas sort of developed with uh, the food flavouring on one hand and maybe they were therapeutic uh, on the other. And so there were, the whole perfume industry grew up um, also very much influenced from Persia and the Far East uh, where um, the uh, perfume industry has been so, so established for so long. But uh, you find then when you get to some of the great traditional pharmacies, and we'll be visiting one in, in Florence, probably the most famous of all, where they developed uh, their rose hip uh, fluids that people still take today and uh, some of the very famous perfumes uh, that actually began in northern Italy and um, then got redeveloped uh, in Germany. And an eau de Cologne, for example, came from this pharmacy in, uh, in Florence. But when it got to Cologne, they called it eau de Cologne, water of Cologne. Uh, and it became very much then for purposes outside of health. I can remember, even as a small child, that eau de Cologne was one of the most simple forms of perfume that the average person who wouldn't go out and buy perfumes per se, would use to um, flavour their handkerchiefs and pillows and those sorts really, of things. Really, that's interesting. Mm. Well, that makes sense because it is mm. one of the traditional perfumes and does come from this uh, wonderful pharmacy in uh, in Florence. And it only changed its name when it, uh, they started exporting it to Germany. I mentioned in my opening notes that uh, one of the things you'll be following is the trail of the Black Plague or Black Death. What was or is... Black Plague. Well, that's correct. The reason we're doing this is, as I said right at the beginning, I'm interested in uh, the effect of social pressures on people, places, and looking at using windows to see how these change. And what can be a bigger pressure on a society than an epidemic? And when we look at the Black Death, in fact, there have been three waves of of the Black Death over time that we know, uh, from the birth of Christ anyway. And uh, the Black Death is the name given to the second of these waves. Uh, it is a horrendous epidemic caused by a bacteria, which uh, uh, we now know a lot about, uh, called Pasteurella pestis. And it's a bacteria that spreads very rapidly um, 
from person to person, spread by the bite of a flea. And so normally it's in the rats that live in society, and the flea can jump from the rat to the human under certain particular social circumstances, and then the human develops um, this catastrophic illness. And in fact, if you get a, a lump from this bite in the groin or the armpit, 60% uh, of those people would be dead within one week. So it's a horrendously serious illness. It, it literally killed 30 to 50% of many of the major cities in, uh, uh, within literally months uh, in the late 1300s. How do we know about the first one? And was it written down about the first one or did it come down as word of mouth? How did, it, no, how did we find out? It's quite interesting. The first one, or the so-called Justinian Plague, uh, was around about 400 years um, AD. And it seems to have come up through Egypt, Alexandria, from Africa. Um, and it was devastating. And I think there were good records of, of history. It, it is well recorded. The problem, of course, is that medicine was not so well developed and pretty well anything that killed people, um, and it, no one knew quite what it was, would be lumped in as the plague. We know a lot more about the Black Death, which came in 1347. And the interesting thing is that this came from the Silk Road routes from, uh, across from Asia around the Caspian Sea. And it's quite well documented uh, how actually it got into the ports of Venice and um, Genoa and Marseille, all of which will be passing through. So in essence, it was imported along the same routes that were the trade routes of the day that we've just been talking about. So it would have been carried by the, the rats from on, on the Silk Road trading? Yes, exactly. And then on, on board ship and then they'd jump ship and, exactly, and off they go. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, uh, the third of these waves actually came to Australia. We had four or five uh, epidemics, not epidemics, but uh, uh, certainly episodes of Black Death or Plague around the turn of the 20th century, around 1900, 1906 uh, in Sydney. And that led to all sorts of changes, as you can imagine. That must have been quite a shock for the local inhabitants. Well, it was a terrible shock. In fact, it led to the complete pulling down of all the terrible housing around uh, uh, the inner port of Sydney. It led to the Maritime Service Board being started. And I think the Australians developed those metal flanges that were put on ropes to stop the rats coming down. And what is not well recognised is that uh, it was some of the first medical research done in Australia was really sorting out and contributing to the story of the rat flea. What did the city fathers do about trying to get rid of it? I mean, once the plague has taken hold, I mean, did they... You said that in, um, in Sydney they did something about clearing away houses and things. But what did they do in the 13th and 14th century? Well... Uh, it's quite interesting. They they blamed everybody and anybody. It was the beginning of terrible Jewish pogroms and killing. They blamed the Jewish people and uh, they blamed other minority groups. Um, probably the only effective thing they did, which was pretty horrendous, was in Milan, where they actually nailed people into their houses. They nailed up the doors if they got sick and just left. Uh, whereas in other parts, they developed quarantine systems. The first quarantine system or the 40 days from Corinth, uh, the Latin for 40, uh, began in Venice. And that was immediately related to the Black Death. Uh, because remember, the, uh, at the peak of the Black Death in Venice, 600 people per day were dying. Huge numbers. And they, ju they just couldn't cope. It just destroyed the whole um, fabric of society. How was it that some of them did survive? I mean, obviously some of them did. But how did some and, and not others survive? 
well, if you're a pope, you would uh, uh, move to Avignon and stay there. Um, people fled. And um, it, it's very interesting because when you look at the mortality in, say, the epidemics in uh, Sydney, um, it, it's sort of around 10 15%. It's not the 30 40 50%. So I, I suspect that although we don't know much about it, there was an increase in the resistance in humans. And so with the plague when it hit, in 1347, you had a completely susceptible population. And then by the time there were these waves and, and you know, if you're killing 30% of the European population, which they did, you can imagine that the ones that were left had developed a level of resistance and you'd really remove the highly uh, prone group of people. So um, we don't know much about it, but it's obviously to do with the relationship between the organism and the and the human and, and development of some levels of resistance. Because there's no doubt that in the night, around 1900, um, uh, as a result of germ theory and, and understanding bacteria and its role, uh, we were developing a fairly crude immunization vaccine technology and taking antibody made in horses and putting them into humans, which actually occurred in Sydney. Uh, so that was, that was reducing mortality by 30 or 40%. And did the Black Plague get to London? It certainly did. Uh, it took. We're getting to London in three weeks, from Venice to London. It took a year for the Black Death to, to do that. Uh, but it's interesting. It actually got into the rural parts of, of London, of England, more than London itself, uh, until, of course, 1665, which is right at the end of this wave of Black Death. So it went for, well, over 300 years, a long time. And everyone knows about the Great Fire of London and how that is given all the credit for wiping out the this last sort of thrust of the Black Death. But there was never plague again, really, in London after that. Probably just as well when you think of the population of London now. Oh, yes. It's, it's just horrendous. I mean, some of the places we'll go to, like Siena, uh, you can see where the cathedral just stopped being built because all the workmen were killed. There was no one. Uh, and so um, others, historians argue what a good thing it was because it really catalyzed the, the final death throes of the medieval uh, system of government. Um, but uh, it was just horrendous. Professor Robert Clancy is my guest today and he's telling us about some of the history of medicine. If we look carefully into medical history, it would seem that there are very few clever men who use lateral thinking in the quest for cures. As a result the way we think about medicine today. Professor, you talked about Pasteur for putting forward some of the cures that we know today. Um, How did they get their knowledge? Was it simply by delving into it themselves and and sort of making a question of the whole thing and like a detective story? Someone once said to me that no one ever has an original idea, but when you look at what someone like Louis Pasteur did in the 19th century, I mean, he had some amazing original ideas. He really stands alone as the person that changed our understanding of medicine. Because we have to remember that in those days, medicine was all about epidemic infection. And he came up clearly with the idea of the germ theory, that infection is caused by an organism, mainly bacteria, his interest. But he even uh, did experimental work with rabies, showing that he could prevent rabies by immunisation. So he developed the idea of infection and also the way in which you could logically logically treat it by immunisation. So something like that just appeared. Now, obviously, around him, there were people who were thinking about 
um, sterility and uh, Lister, for example, uh, built his ideas of sterility on Pasteur's observation. And, and that was one of the two great things that really changed medicine, where people started developing a confidence in hospitals. It wasn't just a place to go and die. And there was some hope that we could make a difference to, the, to outcome. So with the germ theory and sterility, it meant that uh, you could survive an operation. And the second big change, of course, was anaesthetics. You could give an anaesthetic and do deep surgery. And they were the two things that really sprung brought us into the uh, 20th century and, and modern medicine. How much of modern medicine did they learn from the drawings of people like da Vinci and Michelangelo? Oh, uh, they were very important. In, in fact, people like uh, Michelangelo uh, were part of the same guild as doctors. Guilds in the Renaissance period were collections of like-minded workers related to technology rather than exactly what they were doing. And so the, the sculptures and the artists using their uh, various materials were using similar materials to the doctors. And, of course, they had similar interests in understanding anatomy. And so someone like um, Michelangelo, he worked in the hospital dissecting uh, cadavers in Florence for 12 years before he started really doing his, his wonderful work. So his understanding of anatomy was important. And, and da Vinci, of course, did the same. He was a, an early dissector. And uh, his anatomical drawings, which in fact we're having um, discussion about it at a little symposium we have at the end of this, uh, uh, this trip in early October at the Royal Society of Medicine in London, um, his anatomical drawings were just amazing. Uh, incredibly accurate and very important but sadly they weren't printed for many years and so um, the information didn't get disseminated the way Vesalius for example who really published the first great printed uh, anatomical compendium his information really changed the way people thought. I guess the the good thing of that is that they weren't lost. No no they certainly were not and uh, I think we just look in awe uh, today at the extraordinary uh, talents that some of these people had. Your travels are going to take you across England to see some of the famous places associated with medicine there. Where are you going? Well, uh, in England, we are going, I guess there are three, four, four really important, interesting things we're doing. The first is we're, we're getting a guided tour of the original two great hospitals of England. That's St Bartholomew's and St Thomas's, both coming from around about uh, the 11th century and tracing the development of medical care in, in England. And they've discovered only recently in St Thomas's uh, one, the original operating room, which was around about 1800, because prior to that, the, li the limited operations that were done would be done in the person's home or in, in his bed in the hospital. Um, so um, that's the first thing we're doing. The second is we're going to visit the uh, wonderful um, medical museum which is the Welcome Museum in the Science Museum uh, in London, which is just probably the best in the world. And the third thing is that we're having a, a very special showing of the first edition of all the medical books written by the great people we're talking about in the three weeks as we go from Venice to London by the new Welcome Library, which is not yet open, but the woman who runs the library is an Australian uh, friend of mine, and she's opening up and showing us the first edition of Vesalius, books that you, know, you just hear about. So that'll be a very nice conclusion. 
And the final thing is we're having a half-day symposium with the Royal Society of Medicine's Medical History Group where we're looking at the plague, uh, we're looking at um, the medical drawings of uh, da Vinci, uh, we're looking at the development of the Physic Garden and a whole lot of sort of interesting topics like that. Professor, you mentioned before we went to air that you've still got a couple of seats available for the current trip, but I understand you're having another one next year. Yes, we, we, we are. Um, it's, um, I'm, my wife and I are the sort of medical lecturers. We have an uh, art historian who's outstanding from Brisbane who will be talking about the art and the um, architecture, and it's organised by uh, quite a terrific group in Melbourne called Australians Studying Abroad. They're just doing the organising. And I, we said we'd do it twice. We, I think there's one or two slots left this year, but we're certainly going to do it again next year. We'll probably be much better and practised at it by then. And um, we'd love to have anybody who's interested come along and they can give my secretary a ring at uh, 0249 236135. Her name is Janet. And just leave a number and I'll get back to you. That phone number again is 0249236135. Professor, when do you actually depart this year? We're leaving uh, mid-September and we're getting back, uh, I think it's, we're, we're away for three weeks. So about the 13th of September to the 5th of October, does that sound right? I think that's exactly right, yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, one quick last question. We've been talking about plagues and, and those sorts of things through history, and I guess that everyone is now aware of bird flu. How likely do you think it will happen, and what effect will it have on the world? I, I think bird flu will occur. I mean, it's always occurred and recurred. Uh, whether it happens this year or next year or the year after. Bird flu will have uh, a big impact on the world. If we go back to the worst epidemic of influenza on record, which was almost certainly a, a bird flu back in 1919, 3% of the world's population died. Now, the interesting thing is that the current estimates is that if such a new flu arrives, about 90% of the world's population will get it about 30% will have symptoms. So not everybody gets the symptoms. Of those who get symptoms, probably around about 10% will die. So it's a, it's a pretty nasty condition. But when you think of 3% dying compared with 30 or 40% in the Black Death uh, and bubonic plague, then there really is, is quite a difference. I think we have to assume that it's just really a matter of time. Professor Kensey, thank you for your time and I hope you have a great time on your tour. Thank you. It certainly sounds as if you're covering a lot of ground and history in a short time. My guest today has been Emeritus Professor Robert Clancy AM and we've been talking about the history of medicine. Until next time we meet, this is Iris Nichols on behalf of all the team here wishing you well. <laughs>